0: Welcome to the War Room, Ryan. Here as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it.
1: Ron, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, the uh, the book is called "A Continent Erupts: Decolonization, Civil War, and." massacre in post-war Asia, 1945 to 1955. Now, we've covered a little bit of this era on the podcast. We had uh, Raina Mitter on, and he talked about uh, World War II in uh, China, uh, kind of yeah. what was going on there some, but I don't know if we've covered in depth this period of time. So why the focus on this period of time?
1: Well, there have been many, many books, as you know, on uh, World War II, uh, but there haven't been many at all uh, about what happened after World War II. They all seem to end with the uh, Japanese surrender. Uh, And so uh, I, in this book and the uh, previous book, I've been trying to explore what the next ten to fifteen years uh, brought to uh, Asia and as you know from reading the book, the story is quite different from what happened in in Europe uh, the story in Europe is basically one with uh, a happy ending things things start out pretty dicey but they end up very happily uh, with the recovery of Europe, the organization of uh, NATO and a whole bunch of other transnational uh, organizations. And most of all, uh, the beginning of uh, decades of peace and nothing like this occurs in Asia.
0: Yeah, I think the the first time I was exposed um, to something specific about this period was reading um, Eugene Sledge's uh, memoir, or the second one. So he has the first one kind yeah. of during the battle, and then he has a, a second one, recovers some of his time uh, in post war China. And it was kind of stunning because hearing some of what he was saying, I, you know, I was like, oh, wow, okay. So maybe set the table. So the war ends. Uh, and so, what is the status of Asia at the end of World War II?
1: Well, uh, at the immediate end of World War II, uh, all of the countries that had been occupied by Japan, or countries that had been part of the Japanese Empire, uh, were going to be occupied uh, by uh, one of the Allies, uh, either the either the British Commonwealth forces, uh, part of the Southeast Asia Command, or by uh, the American forces from uh, the various Pacific commands. Uh, and noted, most notably, MacArthur in Japan itself, uh, and uh, in the case of uh, the uh, in the case of Korea, of course, the Soviets occupy the northern part of Korea. Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the head of nationalist China. Uh, who is recognized by all the allies as the legitimate leader of China uh, is given authority to uh, accept the surrender of the Japanese forces in China
0: and, and so when we think about you mentioned the war in, in Europe, we think about that ending um, at least today. you think about it ending the wall going up, and then basically up to this day, even proxy wars being fought between Russia and the U S all over the world. Um, but, but some of that bleeds into this, this theater as well, right? Some of this, the partnerships that are, they're starting to be forged here, um, it sets up some of that we see later on down the road, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it, um, many books, uh, portray what happened in Asia as kind of, uh, the uh overflow of the cold war uh, into asia that uh, somehow all these conflicts are just an extension of the cold war uh but what i argue in my book is uh that uh, the cold war antagonists uh principally the us and the soviet union were actually invited in by uh, the, uh, by the various uh, sides in the wars in, in Asia. It's not that uh, these countries were forced to join uh, the Soviet bloc or the uh, Western bloc. It's that uh, both sides uh, tried to sign up the most powerful ally they could. So if, for instance, in the case of Korea, uh, the North Koreans uh, did their best to persuade the Soviets to help them invade South Korea. And uh, Sigmund Ryi in South Korea uh, was very strong on uh, trying to get the U.S. to continue to support him and his regime in uh, uh, South Korea. The same in Indochina. The um, Viet Minh. Uh, fighting the French in Indochina, uh, were went to great efforts to get the uh, People's Republic of China. Once they'd won the war, the Ho Chi Minh himself uh, actually walked to China uh, to get aid from uh, to solicit aid from the Chinese. Of course, the Chinese were were willing to do this. The Soviets uh, needed a lot more persuasion. Uh, and in the same way, the French were fighting uh, to maintain their rule in Indochina. They did their best to convince the Americans that they should help them in Indochina.
0: It, 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 so part of what's happening, the right, if, I'm, if I'm correct, is that in China specifically, is that the, the... The regime is not really handling things well, and you kind of have this groundswell of support, which, which leads to the rise of
1: Mao during this period. I'm sorry. I, I think you, you faded out for part of the you, There was a, a yeah, glitch no part of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: I, I was saying um, in this period, so from 45 to 55, right in the middle, right, you have the rise of Chairman Mao. Uh, and so you, you, you talked about kind of the, the Chinese government and what they're able to do but what were some of the missteps that they made that allowed Mao to rise to power?
1: Well, there, first of all, the, the impact of World War II on China was really devastating. It wrecked the, uh, it wrecked the economy. It caused widespread inflation. There were uh, millions of refugees who'd been displaced. Uh, The whole, uh, infrastructure uh, industrial infrastructure such as it was and roads and uh railroads had been uh destroyed so uh china was in bad shape at the end of the war and all chinese uh expected that finally now there would be a period of peace but in fact within a year and a half there was a renewed <coughs> cold war uh And uh, the Americans, uh, through the Marshall mission, uh, did try to patch up some kind of agreement uh, between the nationalists and the communists. But the fact was that even though the country was in no shape for another round of war, and probably 90% of the people Uh, were opposed to any further uh, fighting, both Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek were determined to uh, duke it out to really uh, try to establish themselves as the undisputed uh, power in China, uh, no matter what it took. And so... You could say that uh, the main reason that fighting broke out in uh, China after a year or two of uh, trying to negotiate something else was that uh, both sides were determined to uh, to have it out. Isn't
0: surprising? Um, so in forty nine, I think Mao takes over. So the mm-hmm. Boxer Rebellion is not even 50 years old, roughly. Is it surprising that we couldn't get China to to move on past some of this? Because they kind of have this history in this period of time, it seems like, where they felt like they're always being taken advantage of, and, and, and obviously in some cases, rightly so.
1: Well, that's right. Both, both Chiang Kai-shek and Mao said, uh, we our aim is to, or my aim is to end Uh, the imperial presence in China uh, to once and for all uh, get rid of foreign domination and humiliation in China uh, that not only goes back to the Boxer Rebellion, goes all the way back to the opium wars. Uh, And in his initial speech in 1949 uh, in uh, Beijing, of course, Uh, Mao Zedong says, China has stood up. And so, and that's that's a good way of expressing what he, what one of his aims. And of course, Chiang Kai-shek had been trying ever since the 1920s to use various means of easing the Americans and British and French uh, out of China, getting them to give up Uh, some of their special privileges. And then, of course, the Japanese come in 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 1930 and uh, present a much more significant challenge so that uh, the work of trying to ease the Western imperialists out of China uh, is suddenly interrupted in the late 30s by the presence of this brand new imperial power uh, that's really going to take over and is not uh, susceptible to any kind of persuasion or negotiation.
0: Yeah, and and so during this period you have, from the China perspective at least, you have um, the Japanese who have been kind of taking advantage of them, obviously the British with opium wars, as you mentioned, the Boxer Rebellion, Um, And then you also have Mao, to his credit, was able to get someone like Edgar Snow to kind of hold his water for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so how much of what we're seeing here in this theater is, uh, you may want to unpack the Edgar Snow stuff for for the audience, but how much of that is going on where it's just propaganda, where it's not really um, people being lied and misled to. And the information that the world is getting about this region is not accurate.
1: Well, uh, the People's Republic of China, uh, when they took power for years afterwards, their story about World War II was that uh, they had done most of the fighting that the communists in China had been the ones really resisting the Japanese and organizing the people and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, his group that was just a bunch of uh, of corrupt uh, uh, do-nothings and, uh, and of, uh, of Chiang Kai-shek that do uh, about 80% of the fighting, all of the big battles with uh, the Japanese, most of which the Chinese lose, all of those big battles are uh, fought by Uh, the nationalist armies and the warlord armies that are nominally uh, under Chiang Kai-shek's command. The one time that the communists uh, try to confront uh, the Japanese in a conventional uh, campaign, the so-called 100 Regiments Offensive, uh, they get their nose bloodied uh, just as badly as uh, the nationalists. Uh, did So the communists are uh, able to survive and actually increase their following, but uh, they're up in the more remote areas, uh, areas that are not economically that important, uh, and they're able to survive there, but uh, the, they can't prevent uh, the chi- Japanese from controlling most of the country and all of the ports uh any more than kai shek could. So
0: going through this process, um we, we kind of talk about China So Let's talk about Korea for a second. Um, you, you touched on it earlier, trying to sign up. Um why is this divide from north to south to Korea? Obviously it leads to the Korean War, but but what happens that that, that pushes us to this point?
1: Oh, well you again you have you have uh two um, authoritarian uh, leaders, uh, both of whom feel that it's their uh, destiny to unite the country uh, as it had been uh, before, uh, before World War II and the Japanese. Uh, and uh, each of them, as I mentioned earlier, appeals to uh, their big brothers for help the, in the case, uh, uh, in the case of North Korea, it's the Soviets. In the case of South Korea, uh, it's the Americans. And both big brothers are initially reluctant to get involved in this quarrel in Korea, the civil war uh, between Kim Jong, uh, Kim Il Sung, and uh, and uh, and South Korea, uh, um, but uh, eventually uh, they're drawn into it uh, partly f- for Cold War reasons, partly because uh, they both underestimate what's going to uh, happen. Sigmund Reid, the leader of South uh, Korea, uh, tells the Americans that he's ready to march North to unite Korea. And the Americans uh, really don't have any idea of how uh, Kim Il sung has been able to build up this huge, this very formidable army with the aid of the Soviets, because it was all done in about a year and a half. Uh, And so the Americans' main worry before 1950 was to try to keep a lid uh, on. Sigmund Rhee, because they thought that the uh, the big danger was he was going to try to march north and start a war, uh, in in Korea. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the uh, Kim Il Sung thought that, and now that the Soviets had given him all given him all these tanks uh, and artillery, that he'd just be able to to march south and within a few weeks would be able to. Uh, overrun the country
0: why is it that um, we're seeing these potentially you could call them blunders if you will Uh, is it more is it just something as simple as uh, the russians are helping the north koreans and the u.s doesn't know is it a little bit of hubris whereas world war ii was ended when the u.s got involved and therefore there's kind of this sentiment if you get the u.s involved you can win any war um is it just bad military strategy What, what why do we have Um, I mean, at the war to end all wars, in the World War II, we've we've got all these big wars, and then now we're getting into stuff like Korea. Why are we not avoiding these things during this period of time?
1: Uh, Well, in the case of Korea, uh, the northern invasion of Korea came as a big surprise to Washington, even though uh, American intelligence agencies said, reported uh, quite extensively on Kim Il-sung's preparations. Uh, They weren't believed. And uh, MacArthur, uh, who had better information, also uh, didn't, uh, was very hesitant to uh, tell Washington that, uh, about all this information. uh, And he, also uh, underestimated the the North Koreans. Uh, for one thing, the Americans didn't understand the imbalance in military strength that had developed between North and South Korea because this had only happened within about 18 months or so. Before that, uh, both sides were pretty well matched. Uh, and uh, so that, that was... But the basic reason that the U.S. decided to... Uh, go to the United Nations and organize uh, resistance uh, to the North Korean invasion uh, was because uh, the U.S. saw this as probably the first step in uh, a whole program of Soviet invasion. Uh, I'm sorry, a whole program of Soviet aggression. Up till this point, The Soviets had gotten control of a number of countries in Eastern Europe, uh, but they'd done that. They hadn't invaded them. Their troops had been there already uh, at the end of the war because uh, they'd been fighting the Germans there uh, so that the Soviets, uh, with their armies in place in Eastern Europe, were able to subvert these governments and and take over uh but in this case uh it was outright russian invasion of ukraine uh this was considered outrageous by uh, many countries in the world uh, that the north would just go ahead and uh, invade the south and and also uh many countries the united nations was much smaller at this time. And many of the members of the United Nations uh, were grateful to the United States for the uh, aid that they were getting. Uh, And they looked to the United States as uh, uh, the the leader of the free world against the communists. And so the Americans were able to get quite a bit of support from uh, other countries uh, to oppose South Korea. Uh, The great majority of uh, troops in South Korea foreign troops in South Korea, of course, were Americans, but nevertheless you had uh, it was something like I think twelve or fourteen countries that sent some kind of military forces to uh, to Korea. They were that committed uh, to the us and uh, to the idea uh, of uh, of stopping aggression.
0: Let's talk about MacArthur. You mentioned him at the beginning of your answer there. Um, So let's make sure I got my date right. He takes over in Japan in like forty-five, right? And 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 he's there, he's there until like forty-nine to fifty-one. It's kind of a weird period there; those last two years. When does he officially leave? Is it fifty-one or forty-nine?
1: I'm sorry. Well, I didn't understand the question. Yeah, MacArthur.
0: So he's there for forty-five, but doesn't he try to resign in forty-nine? But he doesn't leave. No, no, he.
1: It, macarthur is the supreme allied commander uh in in japan uh, which meant in effect that he was kind of the <clears throat> the unofficial uh dictator of japan uh and uh, supervised uh the occupation and he was there uh right up till his relief uh in 1950 uh two by the uh i'm sorry in 1950, yeah 1951 by uh president truman so he was there uh that entire time as uh supreme allied commander and also uh once the war in korea broke out then he became uh, supreme he became the un united nations commander in korea uh also yeah,
0: so we, we turned back power to the Japanese What 49, is that right? And then so then he was there until 51? I'm sorry. Right? Uh,
1: well, the U.S. Uh, the US uh, gradually, uh, yeah, there, there was a whole program of trying to rebuild Japan, restore the economy, and most of all, install a democratic government. So the Americans were involved in uh, writing the new Japanese constitution in all kinds of reforms in uh, democratizing reforms in uh, Japan and uh, a lot of historians divide the occupation into two periods uh, the the first period up to I think, you're right. It's about forty nine or, or so as uh, a period of more uh, radical reform, uh, and in the second period, there's a lot more uh, a lot more attention is paid to trying to restore the Japanese economy and get Japan back on its feet economically. Uh, that doesn't really work out. The thing that really saves uh, Japan and puts the economy back on the road to recovery is the Korean War. Because once the Korean War breaks out, the US is spending so much money in Japan buying all kinds of stuff that it needs uh, to prosecute the war uh, and spending so much money on uh, the expanded presence of uh, American forces in Japan that it gives the economy a huge boost the Japanese economy a huge boost
0: yeah well I guess for me I'm, I'm trying to figure out um why MacArthur he, he's there obviously heavily heavily invested in Japan uh for the first five years of this period we're talking about mm-hmm. he's in Korea uh you mentioned he was reluctant to give stuff back to Washington
1: um how, how do we well, he, know- was, he, he was recalled he was uh fired so to speak, <laughs> by Truman so uh I don't think he wasn't very happy about it. Uh, as far as Korea was concerned, uh, <clears throat> it was really uh, it, it was really the commanders on the scene that conducted the war on a day to day basis. MacArthur uh, made some of the big decisions, but uh, the war, the operational uh, command of the forces. Uh, it was mostly up to the uh, U.N. commanders who were all Americans, mostly on the scene.
0: I guess I'm trying to get a sense of how do you judge MacArthur's role in in this period of time? Was he a net positive, a net negative? Could he have done better? Um, because as we're talking about this, it, it seems like um, you know we have the European theater and the Pacific theater of World War II. Um, and then post-war... Um, these conflicts that we're talking about specifically today, obviously, are, are obviously Asian. But a lot of the stuff that happens post-World War II is, it seems to be more Asia-based. And, and so I'm wondering, um, I have a couple thoughts on, I'm curious what you think is, is that because in Europe you saw um, a lot of fighting over a continent? So it's just it's just a continuous piece of, 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 of fighting that's going on. And so everyone's kind of involved, where specific? it's more island-to-island. And so it's a little bit more spread out. Um, but then also in the rehabilitation, you have someone like MacArthur over there. Could he have been more effective in bringing in bringing this area together, or was it just too divided?
1: Uh, I'm not sure what your what your question is exactly. Uh, MacArthur uh, was very heavily invested in uh, in the uh, rebuilding of Japan and democratizing Japan. But, of course, uh, the U.S. and the Allied powers were uh, also uh, very involved in uh, the occupation of Germany and the denazification and rebuilding of Germany. Germany, of course, was divided into zones. And so that uh, the eventually, of course, the uh, British, French and Americans... uh, Merge their zones into one, and so you have West Germany and East Germany. Uh, and, but the Germany itself remains divided, of course, for decades. Uh, and of course, that's not the case in uh, in Japan. MacArthur pretty much is unopposed in whatever measures he wants to take uh, concerning the occupation. Maybe you should ask it like this then. Should the Allies
0: post World War II been more concerned with north with Korea, with China, uh, with other parts of the Asia Pacific region than just Japan? so you have MacArthur and Japan focused on Japan. Should they have been more focused on some of these other regions?
1: Uh well, if you had asked any of the leaders in Washington at the time, they would have given you a resounding no. Uh they were concerned with Europe. Uh, Europe is you know Europe is where almost everybody in the. US came from. Uh, Europe is where the traditional great powers were, where the industrial uh, the industrial powers were. Uh, and Europe was also the place where uh, they felt they were facing the Soviet challenge head on. So they were uh, certainly concerned with, uh, with Europe, uh, <clears throat> first. Now there was a group, uh, especially, uh, towards the, uh, towards 1948, 49 50, there was, there was a group of Republicans in Congress, uh, that thought that the whole, uh, Europe first philosophy was wrong and that, uh, the U.S. hadn't done enough to save China to uh, help Chiang Kai-shek defeat the the communists. And then uh, with the loss of China, these people became very vociferous. They were referred to eventually as the China lobby. And then with the outbreak of the Korean War, uh, they said, see, I told you so. Uh, this is what happens. We didn't do enough to stop the the communists in in China, uh, and when China enters the Korean War, then uh, they go. Uh, the members of the China lobby uh, go completely batty, uh, and this leads eventually to McCarthy to the period of McCarthyism. But uh, the great hero of the China, the great hero of the China lobby guys, is MacArthur. So,
0: if but yeah, right. So, so you're you're if you'd have asked about the time that they should have focused. I'm guessing from your perspective as a historian, what should have been done different, if
1: anything? Oh, there was well, from my perspective, it didn't. Well, actually, with the aid of hindsight, we can see that there wasn't any way to save China, everything that could have been done was done, and uh. It's it's hard to make the argument, even at the time that China was more important, that China and Korea uh, were more important than Europe. Uh, you could argue that Japan was potentially very important, but the U.S. controlled Japan. Uh, so uh, it, it's very hard to make the the argument that uh China and Korea were the vital, the most vital areas.
0: When you're going through a book like this, there's a ton of research involved. What were some of the surprising things that you found that maybe you didn't know going into the project?
1: Oh, uh, well, there are a number of things that one of the surprising things was the extent to which in these colonial wars, uh, Wars for independence uh, as in Indonesia and Indochina, uh, the number of people who, the number of uh, local people uh, who fought on the colonial side. The, uh, the Dutch had uh, many uh, soldiers recruited from some areas of Indonesia uh, fighting against the uh, Indonesian republic. And in the case of Indochina, uh, I can't remember what the percentage was, but something like 25 to 30 percent of the French Expeditionary Corps was actually made up of Vietnamese soldiers. And as soldiers who'd been uh, in the old French uh, colonial army and then uh, another big proportion of the French uh, Expeditionary uh, Corps were made up of. Algerians, uh, Moroccans, uh, people recorded uh, and uh, people recruited from North Africa. And then also other troops recruited from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the French colonies in Senegal and Togo and other places. So you had... uh, the, the the picture was much more mixed than uh than it appears when you say well the uh the indonesians were fighting the Dutch and the uh Indochinese were fighting the French. That's that's true uh broadly speaking, but there was an awful lot of, of people uh on the French and Dutch side who were not Dutch or French. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oftentimes we find when we go study these topics that it's never it's never flat, right? There's always right. these complexities and, and um and nuances that you, you have to tease out. What would be the one question of this era that you'd like to have answered that you couldn't find an answer to?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Uh there were uh <clears throat> Hmm. Well, there was a lot of material that just wasn't available. Uh, for instance, on the Chinese Civil War, uh, there was a lot of material that either has never been available to researchers, or else was destroyed uh, during during the war. Um, so that that's one area. Uh, I wanted also. Uh, I wanted to find out more information about uh, Japanese who stayed behind and worked with uh, the uh, worked with the anti-colonial uh, forces, uh, and uh, I did find some material on that. But of course, again, that's that's very hard. That's some uh, information. It's very hard to get.
0: Yeah, I know yourself and um, I think Harold Tanner are the only two that I can think of that come to mind. I'm sure there's others that kind of focus on at least China in this period of time. Is there any other good uh, historians that you'd point us to 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 go do some further reading? Um,
1: Yeah, Harold Tanner is one of the leaders, but the other one is uh, there's a very good book. uh, There's two very good books uh, that are uh, written on the Korean War from the Chinese side that are uh, military histories. And uh, since you're not recording the pictures here, I'm gonna turn around and look in my bookcase to get the author's name, which esca- escapes me here. Yeah, there's uh, there are two books by uh, Xiaobing Li, uh, who's now a professor at, uh, uh, let's see, uh at uh, the university of central central oklahoma uh who uh, one of his books is china's battle for korea and uh i think the other one is about uh the chosen reservoir uh about, i'm sorry that, that china's battle for korea is uh about the 1951 chinese big offensives and then there's another book about chosen which i can't remember the title of but those are uh, very very illuminating they have a lot of material on the uh, personalities of various chinese generals and a lot of detail about the the battles uh, the operations themselves
0: attack at chosen i think is the book pardon attack at chosen
1: yeah attack a chosen right okay. yeah willing we'll to all okay
0: so willing we'll to obviously your book and then these books as well in the show notes um okay any final thoughts or anything else that you want to touch on before we let you go today
1: uh let's see um well uh the, the one of the purposes of my book was to sort of uh complicate as we say or that is shake up uh the a sort of stereotypic, stereotypical view of uh, the Cold War in Asia—that uh, it was nothing like—and the hot wars in Asia—that uh, it, it was not simply uh, this. It was not simply the European Cold War extended to Asia, but it was in fact uh, something much more complicated.
0: It often is. It often. Often is. So, thank you so much for your time today and uh, look forward to any future books you might have coming out.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.